and turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 42, page 446, if you have a chair Bible in front of you this evening as we conclude this amazing account of God's sovereignty and Job's suffering by looking at verse 7 through 17 in chapter 42. So let me read those verses and then we'll pray and begin. So here now as God is speaking to you once again through his perfect word. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oak of yoxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we know that you have commanded us to remember your servant Job, to consider his perseverance, his steadfastness, his faithfulness, to recall that you are compassionate and merciful to Job. And so help us to see that compassion and mercy this night. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I love good endings, stories. Somewhat so that if the story doesn't have a good ending, I feel as though my time has been robbed. I was recently speaking with a few brothers that I tend to meet with every uh, Tuesday morning here at the church, and we discuss some good Christian book together, and we were uh, talking about this a recent story that's come forth in a number of installments, and uh, the final installment came forth uh, earlier this year, or may have even been last year, however long it was, and I told them that I was rather disappointed that they hadn't put this spoiler alert before the story because it didn't end well at all. It was one of those kind of stories that you're all together engrossed in the narrative, and you're getting to the end, and if you have eyes to see, you begin to notice, I'm not so sure it's going to go well for the main character, uh, but surely it's going to go well for the main character is what you think, and 
with each passing scene, with each passing part, you realize, oh no, it's not going to go well with the main character. And then if you're anything like me, you reach the end of such a story and you think to yourself, well, maybe there's an epilogue. You know, one of those kind of final words that tell you, surprisingly, unexpectedly, everything actually ends up turning out well in the end. And this wasn't one of those stories. And so you perhaps can leave such an account thinking that you're rather sad. Injustice has been done. Righteousness hasn't been served. There are many times in which just a simple epilogue might undo all of the hardship that's come before. And it's true that when we come to our text today, these final verses in Job chapter 42, we come, as it were, to the Lord's epilogue to Job's life. Because if we had the story end where we left off last week in chapter 42, verse 6, uh, you, you might want an epilogue to Job's experience, thinking that, yes, he had lost all of his health and wealth. Yes, he had finally met the Lord. Yes, he had finally heard from the Lord. Yes, he had finally had an opportunity to even speak to the Lord. But it wasn't as though the Lord gave him the answer for which he so desperately sought, the Lord having hasn't given Job explanation, rather just a long interrogation about where was Job when God exercised all of his might and power in creation. And does Job have the authority and the victory over these beasts known as behemoth and Leviathan? You, you might end the story wondering if there was something good at the end of Job's life. Uh, but gratefully, what we'd get tonight is, is an epilogue that tells us not only do all the sad things become untrue in Job's life? But he gets double the blessing, such as the goodness towards God's servant named Job. And so uh, this simple epilogue is telling us two things. The Lord vindicates Job before his friends and restores Job's fortune. That's all that's uh, before us tonight. And so we'll consider it under the simple headings of Job's vindication and then Job's restoration. But it's a story, if you have eyes to see, that you, you realize is, is telling us a, a very rich gospel truth. Uh, students, it's the gospel truth that for God's people, evil will never finally and fully prevail. That for God's people, yes, all the sad things come untrue. Yes, for God's people, what wins in the end is blessing that's unimaginable in its vast compass and glorious depth as pointing us, no doubt, to the end of suffering. And you might be here in tonight and you are enduring, maybe for many years, maybe just for a few days, or maybe you're ministering to someone enduring for years and days, a kind of suffering, a season of affliction that has brought no small amount of hardship and darkness into their life. And I wonder what kind of counsel you would give to them, what ways in which this Experience of Job might serve you as you advise and give them wisdom according to God's word. And so after we notice Job's vindication and restoration, we'll think at the end how we might take these 42 chapters in full and squeeze out a few different lessons as Job leaves us here at the end. So first, Job's vindication. Now, before you get to these friends, let's remember, if you haven't been with us in recent times, as God is going to speak, you'll notice in verse 7, directly to Eliphaz the Temanite. Uh, let's remember 
when we last heard these friends speak. Because in the narrative, it was actually all the way back in the 20s of the chapters in Job. That you had Eliphaz, you had so far, you had Bildad. These three friends come along to Job and they sought to give him counsel in the midst of his suffering. Uh, they sought to give him comfort in the midst of his affliction. But they gave him anything but comfort. They gave him everything but counsel because all they simply told Job in conversation after conversation and discussion after discussion is Job. All of this horrible, all of these horrible realities that have come to your life, it's only because you just deserve them in some way. You've committed some evil or some sin that has brought this consequence into your life. And in the course of our studies, we've called their counseling system one that was altogether too safe. It was altogether too predictable. In a desire to actually give balm on Job's wounds, what they only did was pour salt into it. And all the while... They had been purported to be speaking on God's side in the suffering. So here comes God. We don't know if it was in a whirlwind-like tone that he just spoke to Job. But notice what we're told in verse 7. The Lord speaks directly to Eliphaz and says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has Now, you want to just pause right there and recognize two principal things that come in that one verse. The first of which is is God is vindicating Job, isn't he? Job all along has longed for the Lord's vindication. And here is Job being vindicated before the friends as Job is right. But you might want to ask the question, well, how is it exactly the case that Job is right? What has he said of God that is right? Because hasn't Job actually uttered a few things? That may even seem far from right. Things about God and how he relates to his people. Well, some people would tell you that what Job has spoken rightly is just what has preceded this text in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 42. His expression of humble repentance. That was the right thing that Job mentioned. Yet, it's probably better... I would submit to you to recognize that all throughout the conversations with his friends... Uh, Job has been speaking rightly about how God relates to the world. That, that God doesn't relate in his sovereignty in these safe and predictable ways. That you can't confine him to this box of it always and only goes this way when God is governing. So yes, Job has stepped out of accord in one way or another along the way. But in the main, his chief argument has been right. That I haven't deserved this suffering. God is doing something that is not so easily explained within your system. And so Yahweh's anger is burning against these three friends. And students, I hope you have a category in your understanding of God that he burns in anger when he's misrepresented. That he burns in anger when his truth is even not applied correctly. Is there a way in which maybe you have recently misrepresented God? misinterpreted God's sovereignty or even perhaps misapplied it to a sufferer. And you know that God's anger is stirred by such misrepresentation. Stirred in such a way that sacrifice is needed. Notice verse 8. He tells Eliphaz, Therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right. 
as my servant Job has. Uh, Kids, if you just glance down at that verse again, do you see the number of times that the Lord refers to Job as my servant? It's as though with each phrase, he wants to punctuate it along the way for these friends to realize he is my servant. You have not served me through your counsel and comfort to Job, but, but he has been my servant all along. So now Job's vindication leads to Job's intercession, that he has to play this priestly role for his friends, that he has to make atonement for them, that they might be restored to the Lord. No doubt there's a beautiful echo, isn't there, of the Lord Jesus' priestly intercession for us, that his prayer is always accepted before the Father, that God will not treat us according to our folly and our sin. So the friends, they, they go to Job, don't they? They do exactly what the Lord required, and forgiveness comes. You notice the end of verse 10, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I wonder if you're someone that's maybe perhaps like these friends. So much of the difficulty along the way in counseling Job was principally related to the fact that they never wanted to be wrong. They couldn't countenance the possibility that their counsel might be wrong. And how many relationships are just like Job and his friends, where one side refuses to ever consider the possibility that he or she might be wrong. And what it does is divide. What it leads into is falsehood and error. Uh, But the good news actually in this first part of the passage with Job's vindication is it leads to the reconciliation, no doubt, between Job and his friends. According to the ancient Near Eastern customs that belong to this kind of sacrifice, this kind of intercession, we we can be sure actually by the end of verse 9, these friends are restored. For wouldn't they of course be restored and reconciled to one another? As the three friends have said, Job, we were wrong all along. We have this divine decree of special revelation that has showed us we were wrong and you were right. Would that not restore peace? Would that not restore unity? Would that not restore harmony? To the friends. I wonder if you're in here tonight and you might need to go to a friend and say, you know, I've been wrong all along. And that simple expression of humility might be sufficient to bring about reconciliation. No doubt, Job finally receives what he has longed for throughout this book. Vindication that he has spoken what is right. And that vindication leads in verse 10. Notice, to Job's restoration. We're told, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I was with a member of a staff at a local church not too long ago, and this a church had recently called a new senior pastor, and a uh, senior pastor that I knew, and so the staff member was asking, well, what's he like? You know, this new leader was going to come into the office. What's his personality like? What's his leadership style like? What kind of a preacher is he? What does he enjoy? What is he uh, somewhat disturbed by uh, along the way? And, and kids, you may have felt the same way before when you started a new semester at school. You know, what's this new teacher like? Or you might have gone to a new sports team and wonder what's this new coach like? And you get to this point in Job and you wonder what's God like? You know, if you ended the story even before our text began, here's what we would know about God, wouldn't we? He reigns over all things, including Satan himself. The Lord sovereignly decrees even the suffering of his servants. When God shows up in the whirlwind, 
And with question after question, tells Job to ready himself for the wrestling match. For where were you when I created all things? Are you able to sustain all things? So he's not only the authority, he's not only the sovereign, he's not only the creator, he's also the ruler and sustainer of the universe. Uh, But what you see here is also a truth about God, don't you? He's a God that pours forth grace upon grace towards his people. Uh, Surely there's an echo of grace that would have belonged to the story of Job by this point in the narrative. I trust we could all see that. But you see here at the end, there are two things that mark Job's experience of God's grace. What is he like? He's a gracious ruler. He's a gracious sovereign. He's a gracious creator. Because we're told, aren't we, in verse 10, Job gets twice as much as he had before. Skip down to verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Verse 17 ends by saying, and Job died, an old man and full of days. Grace upon grace is what Job gets at the end. And what you need to see, first of all, is it's grace that's unexpected. There's no guarantee whatsoever that this was how the story was going to end. There's no assurance whatsoever that this is the epilogue that would come. Maybe he would just get the vindication. But there was no guarantee that he would get the restoration. That his life at the end would be better than it was at the beginning. And we see also that God's grace is not just unexpected, it's unmeasured. That's what we're meant to see and these incredible terms that belong to what God has given Job at the end of his life. It's actually so unmeasured that many unbelieving commentators on Job think this is just a myth here at the end. That it's just not possible for this to have happened to a man. That he gets double the blessing at the end of the life after all the suffering that's come upon him. And yet isn't that the way that the Lord so often works? It's grace upon grace that's altogether unexpected. It's grace upon grace that is altogether unmeasured. It's grace upon grace that means suffering comes to an end. And I trust you know that if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you have a promise, you have an assurance of of grace upon grace. That means suffering will come to an end. For some of you, it may be suffering like Job. That comes to an end really in this life in many ways, this side of heaven. At the end of your experience, before you finally die, is one of just constant blessing and enjoying God's good gifts. That's possible that that might be your lot in life. And what a wondrous thing that would be. But you do know, even if it isn't, even if each and every year is only going to get harder, each and every decade will only get worse, that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised what? The suffering will come to an end, fully and finally, When in the new heavens and the new earth, he wipes away every tear from your eye and restores you in unexpected, manifold, and unmeasured ways to know that actually, it's always and only getting better for God's people. That all the sad things will no doubt definitely become untrue. That you too will find the Savior's vindication and restoration. Emily and I were hanging out with a family friend of ours this past week on Tuesday evening. They really are some of our closest friends. And uh, there was a time a few years ago when just life circumstances and the Lord's callings meant we kind of parted ways. And many of you know what that is like. And 
I suppose if you've been in such a situation like that, that you might have some sort of going away party for the person that's moving on and the person that's leaving, or you might be someone like me that almost just refuses to acknowledge the reality, and so I just never say goodbye, and my, my way of talking about it is like, well, we'll see each other again. Because there's truth that we're going to see each other again. And while it happened, I'd seen this family about 18 months ago. Emily hadn't seen him, though, in about five years. And you saw these friends for the first time in so long, and you just fall right back into the rhythm that you knew so well so many years ago. And there's a way in which I think the same thing is meant to be true in our life when we come to our study of Job, because it's a friend for some of you that you're going to say goodbye to in certain ways. Now, we studied him in depth his experience in detail in recent months. And it may not be till sometime next year in your Bible reading plan that you come across Job. Uh, but I trust that as you reflect on his reality of suffering, his experience of affliction, that you might actually have a few things that stick to you. That when you meet him again, you just fall right back into where you left off. Because what I want to give you here at the end are five summary lessons that we can take from Job's experience of suffering. Uh, these for sure are lessons that not only we need to learn in our own lives, they are for sure lessons that we can likewise pass along to those who are in suffering, that we might not be like Job's counselors and comforters and so fail in our duty to give mercy to those that need it. So five simple lessons to learn about suffering wisely at the end. Number one, display God's sovereignty in your suffering. Display God's sovereignty in your suffering. You remember the book began all the way back. In many ways, there was this discussion between Yahweh and Satan, where Satan is coming and telling Yahweh, None of your people will worship you, none of your people will glorify you if all they have is you. So let me take everything away, and they will just curse you to your face. Now, what does the Lord say? Go for it. Let's see. And what has Job done but display God's glory throughout his experience of suffering? He has come along the way and said, no, I will not curse God to his face. No, my dear wife, I will not curse God and die. I will cling to him in ways that perhaps is so difficult to understand. But nevertheless, the preeminent desire in the midst of my affliction is to display God's glory. Number two, trust God's sovereignty in your suffering. Among the many things that Job undeniably preaches... Among many of the lessons that you just can't escape is this one, that God is sovereign even over the suffering of his people. And we talked about that this morning, didn't we, in the book of Acts. And kids, I trust you remember that to say God is sovereign just means he's in control of it, that he's in charge of it. I wonder if you trust when suffering and affliction and hardship and hurt, when it comes to your life, do you trust that God is doing something good? That's even beyond all your explanation and imagination, which leads to number three, cherish God's mystery in your suffering. This is perhaps the central point that the friends got wrong. Yes, God is sovereign over all things, but his sovereignty often means he's incomprehensible and mysterious. It makes no sense sometimes why you have to go through what you have to go through, why he puts you through what he puts you through. What Job so desperately desired, didn't he, was an answer from God. And when God shows up, he doesn't give him an answer. He just says, Job, behold my mysterious power and authority. And Job, that's all you need to know. That my power and authority is working for you in ways you can't possibly comprehend. 
And what you do as a Christian believer is you, you cling to that reality of Ephesians chapter 3, that prayer that says God is able in his mysterious sovereignty to do far more. Abundantly all we ask for or think according to the power at work within us. So you display God's sovereignty. You trust God's sovereignty. You cherish God's mystery. Fourthly, you remember Christ's advocacy in your suffering. What has Job wanted throughout all of these conversations with his friends but an advocate? He's often used the language of, of a mediator. And all the way back in chapter 19, he reached this mountaintop-like experience saying, I know why Redeemer lives and at last my Redeemer is going to stand upon the earth. He wants someone to defend his case. And we've said frequently throughout our study that we know that defense attorney's name. We know that advocate and mediator is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the midst of your suffering and affliction, your desire for vindication, your longing for justice, are you Remember, there's an advocate for God's people, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, fifthly, finally, persevere unto eternity with your suffering. Persevere unto eternity with your suffering. If you never got the epilogue of Job, if you never got the assurance of an epilogue in your life, would it still be enough, this vision of God's mystery, this vision of God's sovereignty, this vision of Christ's advocacy would still be enough to help you persevere unto eternity because that's actually what the good news of the gospel is. Isn't there an epilogue that's coming for all of God's people? When one day the story will change and what it actually changes into is the beginning of a very new chapter that just leads to one chapter after another of everything getting better and better. Double portions of blessing an assurance of grace and forgiveness and everlasting blessedness at the Father's right hand. So these light and momentary afflictions, what they are genuinely achieving for you as an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant Job and the way in which he displays unto us humility in suffering, perseverance in affliction, and we ask you would stir within us those same graces that we might be people that know what it means to wait upon you, to look to you, to be strengthened by you, that even in the midst of unexplainable suffering and unimaginable affliction, we might persevere unto the very end, knowing that suffering does have an end, for those whose life is found in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we respond to our text, reminding ourselves once again and singing in praise and adoration of that hope that's found only in Jesus Christ. Turning in our hymnal to number 521, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less.